Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But before you can truly learn from the tales of our past, you must first understand them. And you're in luck because you found the one and only show that dives deep into the historical figures of our past and how key events have shaped the world that we live in today. You're tuned to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Right here on WRFH, Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. With your host of today's show, Connor Bolanos. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. This week, we're going to be talking about two figures who are really important, especially when it comes to military invasion and military tactics during the Thirty Years' War. Those people being Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, the Lion of the North, and, the, and Albrecht von Wallenstein, the main commander of the Catholic forces for a large period of the Thirty Years' War. So, considering we have two people to go through today, let's jump right in in regards to the life of Gustavus Adolphus. So Gustavus Adolphus was born in Stockholm as the oldest son of Duke Charles of the Vasa dynasty and his second wife, Christina of Holstein-Gottorp. At the time, the king of Sweden was Gustavus, Gustavus Adolphus's cousin, Sigismund, but the staunch Protestant Duke Charles forced the Catholic Sigismund to let go of the throne of Sweden in 1599, which was part of a preliminary re religious strife before the Thirty Years' War, upon which his father reigned as regent before taking the throne as Charles IX of Sweden in 1604. And it was upon his death in 1611 that a 16-year-old Gustavus Adolphus inherited the throne, being declared of age and able to reign at 17 as of the 16th of December. Now, before we can really talk about the military tactics of Gustavus Adolphus, which is really what's the most important thing, he did institute some uh, political reforms, like the establishment of new schools, which really endeared him to his people, as they were very progressive in nature for the time. But ultimately, it's its military innovation and its military reforms and tactics that really define him as a ruler. So the historian Ronald S. Love found that from 1560 to 1660, there were few innovators notably Maurice of Nassau and Gustavus Adolphus, who many can actually attribute credit with revolutionary developments in warfare and with having laid the foundations of military practice for the next two centuries. Gustavus Adolphus's innovative tactical integration of infantry, cavalry, logistics, and particularly his aggressive use of artillery, earned him the title the father of modern warfare in the eyes of some scholars. And his advancements in military science took Sweden to, be, to become the most dominant Baltic power the next century until the decline of the Swedish Empire during the Great Northern War and a little bit before and after that. So Gustavus Adolphus was the main figure responsible, really, for the success of the Swedish arms during the Thirty Years' War, leading his nation the great prestige during this battle, during this war. As a general, Gustavus Adolphus is famous for employing a mobile artillery on the battlefield, as well as using it very aggressively, where attack was stressed over defense and mobility and cavalry initiative was emphasized. So in a way, this is really an early heralding and beckoning towards Napoleonic tactics, which also focused on speed and aggressive use of artillery 
in battle in order to overwhelm the enemy. But amongst other innovations, he installed an early form of combined arms in his forces, where the cavalry could attack from the safety of an infantry line reinforced by cannon and retire again within the group after their foray. Inspired by the reforms of the Maries and the Sal, he adopted much shallower infantry formations that were common in pike and shot armies of the era, with formations typically fighting in five or six ranks, occasionally supported at some distance by another such formation. The gaps being the provinces of the artillery and the cavalry is artillery in themselves different, in addition to the usual complements of heavy cannon, he introduced light mobile guns for the first time into the Renaissance battlefield. These were grouped into batteries which supported a more linearly deployed formation, replacing the, the very cumbersome and unmovable traditional deep squares used in other pike and shot armies of the time. In consequence, his forces were able to rapidly redeploy and reconfigure, which was caused great confusion amongst his enemies who were not really able to do the same. And he created the first modern Swedish navy, which successfully transported troops and supplies to the continental battlefront. Gustavus Adolphus was so renowned in the time period as a military commander that those such as Karl von Clausewitz and Napoleon Bonaparte considered him one of the greatest generals of all time, which was also an evaluation agreed with by General S. Patton and many others in military history. He was also renowned for the constancy and purpose and the equality of his troops. No one part of his armies was considered better or received preferred treatment when it came to receiving supplies, training, or overall prestige. As was common in other armies where cavalry was the elite, followed by artillery, and both disdained infantry, which was considered the lowest of the fighting ranks to be in. In Gustavus's army, the units were extensively cross-trained as well. Both cavalry and infantry could service artillery as his heavy cavalry did when turning captured artillery on the opposing Catholic tercios at the first Breitenfeld. Pikemen could also shoot, although not as accurately as designated musketeers, so a valuable firearm could be kept in the firing line at all times. His infantrymen and gunners were taught to ride as well if needed. This is a tactic that Napoleon Bonaparte himself thought highly of and copied within his very own tactics. For anyone just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos, the show where we dive deep into the historical figures of our past to better understand our present. For all of you just tuning in, welcome back to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. We just got done talking about the military innovation and the very early life of Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, the Lion of the North. So let's get into Gustavus's actual military campaigns, because that's really what grants him such great prestige and this really important title. So Gustavus Adolphus inherited three wars from his father when he ascended to the throne, mainly against Denmark, which had attacked Sweden in 1611, against Russia, due to Sweden having tried to take advantage of the Russian times of trouble, and against Poland, due to Charles having deposed King Sigismund III, his nephew, as the King of Sweden. The war against Denmark, also known as the Kalmar War, was concluded in 1613 with a peace that did not cost Sweden any territory, but it was forced to pay in heavy indemnity to Denmark. In the winter of 1612, during a period of two weeks, he did at the time during this campaign burn down, actually, 24 Scanian parishes and most of their population without meeting any enemy troops. And this war... The largest destroyed sediment being at the town of Vey, which two years later was replaced by the Danish king Christian IV and nearly Christianized, uh, the last Scanian town to be founded by the Danish king. But this really 
was for Gustavus Adolphus. One of the only times where really his troops went out to loot a town or really ransacked it. During the Thirty Years' War, he did a very good effort and probably did the best job out of all armies during the time period in preventing looting and keeping order of the troops. But this was a time where that order seemed to slip, and he really developed a fearsome reputation in the region for allowing that to happen. The war against Russia, which was also known as the Ingrian War, ended in 1617 with the Treaty of Stol Stolbovo, which excluded Russia from the Baltic Sea. The final war, the war against Poland, ended in 1609 with the Truce of Altmark, which transferred the large province of Livonia to Sweden and freed the Swedish forces for the subsequent intervention in the Thirty Years' War, where Swedish forces had already established a bridgehead in 1628. Now, the weak electorate of Brandenburg was especially torn apart by a quarrel between the Protestant and Catholic parties. The Brandenburg minister and diplomat, Baron von Samuel von Winterfield, influenced Gustavus Adolphus to support and protect the Protestant side of Germany. When Adolphus began his push into northern Germany in June to July of 1630, he only had 4,000 troops, but he was soon able to consolidate the Protestant position in the north, and using reinforcements from Sweden and money supplied by France, which was given to him at the Treaty of Barwald. After Swedish plundering in Brandenburg, 1631 endangered the system of retrieving war contributions from the occupied territories, marauding and plundering by Swedish so soldiers was prohibited. So this is where he, really where that crackdown and establishment of order came. Meanwhile, at the time, a Catholic ar ar army under Johann Sercles, the Count of Tilly, was laying waste to the province of to the Kingdom of Saxony. Gustavus Adolphus met Tilly's army and crushed it at the First Battle of Breitenfeld in September 1631, where he then marched across Germany, establishing winter corners near the Rhine, making plans for an invasion of the rest of the Holy Roman Empire on behalf of the Protestant forces. In March of 1632, Gustavus Adolphus invaded Bavaria, a staunch ally of the Holy Roman Emperor, where he forced the withdrawal of the Catholic opponents at the Battle of Rain, marking the high point of the campaign. In the summer of that year, he sought a political situation that would preserve the existing structure of the states in Germany, while guaranteeing the security of his Protestants. But achieving these objectives depended on his continued success in the battlefield. So that's what he was said to do. And it was actually during these one of these battles as well, where he was interestingly war without armor, proclaiming the Lord God is my armor. But, you know, this is likely... Uh, proven as false and merely just something that came uh, up in battle as more of a propaganda or morale tactic for the soldiers. In 1627, he was shot in the muscles above his shoulders where he survived, but the doctors couldn't remove the bullet. So from that point on, he could not wear iron armor and the two fingers of his right hand were paralyzed. So while in a sense, he didn't actually wear armor from that point on, you know, he spun it in order to really be more of a morale effect and really proclaim his faith, you know, as a main reason for it when really it was more so he was shot and paralyzed and couldn't wear it. But the military success of Gustavus Adolphus would not last forever, unfortunately. At the Battle of Lutzen on the 6th of November, 1632, which is one, we saw one of the most decisive battles in the Thirty Years' War. It was ultimately a Protestant victory, but it was a costly victory for the Protestants because it was at this battle that Gustavus Adolphus would be slain, which really was a huge blow to the campaign because at this point in time, without him at its head, there were no really completely capable, no as capable military leaders. Not to mention that the removal of him really saw the removal of a large extent of support from Sweden, who was the strongest, arguably, 
well, really the strongest, of all the Protestant forces at the time. So the loss of Gustavus Adolphus and much of Sweden in regards to the Thirty Years' War was a huge blow to the Protestant forces and a real win for the Catholic forces at the time. So Gustavus Adolphus was killed in battle when he became separated from his troops, leading a cavalry charge on his wing. Towards 1 p.m. of that day, in the thick mix of guns and smoke and fog that was covering the field, the king was separated from his riders and during that suffered multiple shots. A bullet crushed his left arm below the elbow. Almost simultaneously, his horse got shot under him, well, which made it a bit difficult to control. His horse didn't instantly die, but... Being wounded, it was a bit rowdy. In the mix of fog and smoke as well, the king rode astray behind the enemy lines, where he sustained yet another shot in the back, was stabbed, and fell off his horse. Lying on the ground, he received a final fatal shot to the temple. For some time, though, his fate remained unknown. But when the gunnery paused and the smoke cleared, his horse was spotted between the two lines, Gustavus himself not on it and nowhere to be seen. His disappearance stopped the initiative of the hitherto successful Swedish right wing, while a search was conducted for his body, which was partly stripped and found an hour or two later, and secretly ac evacuated from the field in the Swedish artillery wagon in order to prevent the entire uh, Protestant forces from being uh, demoralized and potentially routing from the battle as a result of Gustavus Adolphus's death. After his death, his wife initially kept the body and his heart in the castle of Nykoping over for a year, but now lays the rest in the Radar Home Church in Stockholm. In February 1633, following the death of the king, the Swedish Riksdag of the Estates, which is mainly, in a way, I guess, the council or the parliamentary legislative government of Sweden, was one of the only few uh, nations to really have that at the time, but it consisted of mainly nobility, decided that Gustavus Adolphus would become styled Gustavus Adolphus the Great. No such honor had been bestowed on any other Swedish monarch before or since, making him the only king to have that kind of honorific title within the nation. The crown of Sweden from then on was inherited in the Vasa family, and from Charles IX's time excluded those Vasa princes who descended from deposed monarchs. Gustavus Adolphus's younger brother had died ten years before, and therefore there was only the king's daughter left as the female heir. Maria Eleonora and the king's ministers took over the government on behalf of Gustavus Adolphus's underage daughter Christina upon her father's death. But he did leave one other known child, his illegitimate son Gustav, the Count of Vasaburg. In the totality of his reign, in military organization and strategy, Gustavus is deemed by many military scholars to really be ahead of his time. While most powers at the time relied on mercenary troops and more tertio-like tactics, which, which really were more immobile, didn't emphasize artillery at all, he, Gustavus Adolphus organized a national standing army that distinguished itself with its discipline and high moral standards. The king being deeply religious himself, he desired his soldiers to behave like a truly Christian army, and his stern measures against the common practices of looting, raping, and torture were effective up until his death. His successes were due to this discipline, his use of small mobile forces, the superiority of his firearms, and even his own personal charisma, which was used to really inspire the men with great morale. And although he was deeply interested in the internal progress of his kingdom, much of the credit for the development of the domestic policy b belongs to Oxenstierna, which was a minister at the time. Thus ends the reign and life of Gustavus Adolphus, the Lion of the North, and probably the greatest Protestant leader of the Thirty Years' War. If you're not reading and learning history, then you're doomed to repeat it. 
For all of you just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos. For all of you just tuning in or tuning back in, welcome back to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. We just got done talking about the life of Gustavus Adolphus, the main Protestant leader and most successful general of the Protestant camp during the Thirty Years' War. And now we're going to talk about his main adversary, the man who's responsible for most of the Catholic victories in the Thirty Years' War, Albrecht von Wallenstein. So Wallenstein was born on the 24th of September, 1583, in Bohemia, into a poor, actually Protestant branch of the Waldstein family, who owned the Hermannice Castle and several surrounding villages. He was raised bilingually, with his father speaking German and his mother Czech. But yet, Wallenstein in his childhood had a better command of Czech than that of German, and his parents' religious affiliations were Lutheranism and Hussitism, which was uh, part of the Hussite heresy, uh, respectively. So he was raised in a Protestant household, but eventually would join the Catholic side, which is a bit interesting. After their deaths, Albrecht for two years lived his, with his maternal uncle, Heinrich, the Salvata of Chom and Kolsenberg, a member of the Unity of Brethren, and, ado- and with this he adopted his uncle's religious affiliation. His uncle sent him to the Brethren School at Kolsenberg Castle in eastern Bohemia. In 1597, Albrecht was sent to the Protestant Latin School at Goldberg in Silesia, where the then-German environment led him to hone his German language skills. While German became Wallenstein's lingua franca, he is said to have continued to curse at those he despised in Czech. On the 29th of August, 1599, Wallenstein continued his career at the Protestant University of Altdorf near Nuremberg, Franconia, where he was often engaged in brawls and fights with his fellow classmates and individuals, leading to his imprisonment during that time. He beat one of his servants at one point so badly that he had to purchase him a new suit of clothes on top of paying compensation. In February of 1600, Albrecht left Altdorf and traveled around the Holy Empire, France, and Italy, where he studied at the University of Bologna and Padua. At this time, Wallenstein was fluent in German, Czech, Latin, and Italian, and also able to understand Spanish, and while also speaking a little bit of French. It was then that Wallenstein joined the army of the Emperor Rudolf II of Hungary, where under the command of Giorgio Basta, he saw two years of armed service against the Ottomans and Hungarian rebels. In 1604, his sister married the leader of the Moravian Protestants, Karl the Older of Zaraton. He then studied at the University of Olomouc, and his contact with the Alamoc Jesuits was partly responsible for his conversion to Catholicism in the same year. So despite his sister marrying into a very heavily Protestant and influential Protestant camp, with his family being Protestant and his entire lifestyle being Protestant, he still ends up converting to Catholicism ultimately. But the contributory factor to this conversion may have actually been the counter-reformation policy of the Habsburgs that effectively barred Protestants from being appointed to higher offices at courts in Bohemia and in Moravia, and the impressions he gathered in Catholic Italy. While there are no sources clearly indicating the reasons for his conversion, except for an anecdote by the contemporary Franz Christoph von Kelvin Hoover about the Virgin Mary saving Wallenstein's life when he fell from a window in Innsbruck, Wallenstein was later made a member of the Catholic Order of the Golden Fleece. So it is entirely possible that his conversion was actually one done more for political reasons than one actually done for religious reasons, which wouldn't be that uncommon at the time, considering that many had converted from Catholicism to Protestantism because they wished to remove influence from the Pope and also consolidate the control over their territory by seizing uh, church lands. So in 1607, based on recommendations by his brother-in-law and another relative, 
Wallenstein was made Chamberlain at the court of Matthias, and also Chamberlain to the Archdukes Ferdinand and Maximilian. In 1609, Wallenstein married the Czech Lucretia Vikov, the wealthy widow of Arkleb von Vik- of Vikov, who owned the towns of Vesedin, Lukov, Raimis, and Holdesov. She was three years older than Wallenstein, and he inherited her estates after her death in 1614, using the, this newly gained wealth to win, his fa- to win favor, offering and commanding 200 horses for the Archduke Ferdinand of Styria for his war with Venice in 1617, thereby relieving the fortress of Gradisica from the Venetian siege. He later endowed a monastery with his wife's later name and also reburied her there. In 1623, Wallenstein would remarry to Isabella Katharina, the daughter of the Count von Hardick, who bore him two children, a son who died in infancy, and one surviving daughter. So now let's get into the specifics of uh, Albrecht von Wallenstein's war in the thirty year involvement in the Thirty Years' War. In the summer of sixteen eighteen, the Count Thurn led ten thousand troops into Moravia to secure their loyalty to the rebellion. Nobles who wished for the re- rapprochement with Ferdinand faced a choice. Senior nobleman George von Nacold commanded the Moravian cavalry with while his brother in law Wallenstein the infantry. Both decided to take their regiment into Austria. Nacod's troops rebelled and fled for his life, while Wallenstein's major demanded authorization from the estates, and it was upon this declaration that Wallenstein drew his sword and ran him through, quoting that a fresh major was immediate and a fresh major was immediately appointed and displayed greater tra- tractability than the commander that he just ran through. Deserting the Bohemians at that time, he marched his regiment to Vienna, taking with him the Moravian treasury. There, however, the authorities told him that the money would go back to the Moravians, but he had shown his loyalty to Ferdinand, the future emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Wallenstein equipped a regiment of curiosers and won great distinction under the command of Charles Bonaventure de Longueval, the Count of Bacoy, in the wars against Ernst von Mansfeld and Gabriel Bethen, both supporters of the Bohemian Revolt in Moravia. Wallenstein recovered his lands, which rebels had seized in 1619, and after the Battle of White Mountain, which was a decisive battle with the Protestant forces in southern Germany in the early onset of the Thirty Years' War. He secured the estates belonging to his mother's family and confiscated large tracts of Protestant land. He grouped his new possessions into a territory called the Friedland in northern Bohemia. A series of successes and battles led to Wallenstein becoming in 1622 an imperial count, count Palatine, in 1623 a prince, and in 1625 the Duke of Friedland. We, so really registering a large rise in the ranks, which was respective of his very able capacity as an administrator, and his large successes on the battlefield. In order to aid Ferdinand against the Northern Protestants and to produce a balance in the army of the Catholic League under Johann Terzeclaes, the Count of Tilly, Wallenstein offered to raise a whole army for the imperial services and received a commission to do so on the 25th of July, 1625. Wallenstein's successes as a military commander brought him fiscal credit, which in turn enabled him to receive loans, to buy lands, many of these lands being former states of conquered Bohemian nobles. He used his credit to grant loans to Ferdinand II, which were repaid through lands and titles. Wallenstein's popularity soon recruited 30,000 and not long afterwards 50,000 men, and the two armies worked together over from 1625 to 1627, at first against Mansfeld. Having beaten Mansfeld at the Salle in the 25th of April, 1626, Wallenstein cleared Silesia of the remnants of his army in 1627. And it was during this time as well where he succeeded in defeating Christian IV of Denmark at the Battle of Volgas and neutralizing Denmark from the Thirty Years' War in the Peace of Lübeck. 
However, over the course of the war, Wallenstein's ambitions and the abuse of his forces had earned him a host of enemies, but both Catholic and Protestant princes and non-princes alike. Ferdinand, I also suspect of Wallenstein, of planning a coup to take over control of the Holy Roman Empire. The emperor's advisors advocated dismissing him, and this was done on, the se on September 1630. The decision was taken at Regensburg on the 13th of August of that year, and on the following day, Wallenstein's financer actually committed suicide, due to having accrued a mountain of debt financing Wallenstein. Wallenstein was eventually assassinated after retiring his army to Bohemia, and Vienna soon um, definitely convinced of his own treachery, found, founded a secret court which found him guilty, and the emperor looked for a means to get rid of him, putting a bounty on his head. And on the 24th of January, 1634, the emperor signed a secret patent removing him from command, and finally an open patent charging him was signed, on the 18th of February. After his arrival in Cheb, however, cer certain senior and Scottish Irish and Irish officials in his force assassinated him on the night of the 25th of February, ending the life of Albrecht von Wallenstein and his supposedly traitorous ambitions to the Holy Roman Empire. So thank you guys for tuning in for another week of history should it be a mystery and listening to these important military commanders of the 30 Years War. Join us next time as we delve into more historical figures from our past. And that's all the time we have left today for you history buffs. There's many more historical figures from our past to discuss. So be sure to join us same time, same place next week for a new edition of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos.